0: Hey, everybody, welcome to the What is Money Show. I'm sitting down today with Mr. Tur de Meester. Tur, it's been a long time coming. Welcome to the show. I'm excited
1: to be here. Hey, Robert.
0: Glad to have you. Um, most of my audience probably knows you because a lot of us are Bitcoiners, but in case they don't, Tur is a well known Bitcoiner, been around for many years. I uh, would also give you the labels of economist, investor, philosopher. Um, and I think we're going to try to have an interesting dialogue today about some topics you and I have both been thinking about, and we'll hopefully push the edges of our own understanding and break some new ground. With that said, where should we start? We have this outline here that says, why do we think philosophy is important? Yeah, well, first I was going to
1: say, like, I would not call myself a philosopher. I mean...
0: That's why I called you the philosopher. People it's do the same I, to me.
1: I'd say I'm deeply, deeply closeted. No, but I, I don't think I'm a. I'm a philosopher. I don't think I've I've read enough. I don't think I've uh, and seriously, I don't think I've written enough. Um, and also, I don't think I've 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 done this enough. You know, like to have in-depth discussions and debates. And I really think that's that's needed to to earn anything close to a label like that. Uh, but but I do love you know, I love philosophy and I think it's, it's really important. Um, and, uh, and, and it's like, and it's something that is, you know, if you learn about it in a context, that's like stuffy and boring and academic and like very esoteric, it's, um, it can just be a turnoff, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that was the case for me for a while. I was like, man, this stuff, uh, at least for a period, I was really turned off by some some things and I even tried them. I started studying philosophy in Leuven when I was like 17 at the university. and um, it went above my head and I think and, and not only that, but the topics just did not resonate with me. It was just stuff that the philosophy is so wide, you know. So I feel like if you can just you know, if you can link it to something that is really burning inside of you, in that time period and then you find you know philosophical content or ideas or concepts I think that's where it really comes alive where, where it, 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 it gives you me gives your life meaning and, um, and and in my case it was mostly about trying to you know how do I not become a cynic like that was one of my big you know missions is like how do I avoid that and then the the way to get there was to find truth or things that I that I really believe are true and then that is like gravity then it's like there's something solid under my feet and and I can choose a direction and I have agency uh, so that to me that 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 is why personally philosophy is important um, and in the big picture of course I think it's what probably makes us human right I mean to 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 find knowledge together and, and uh, to kind of um, um just, just kind of grow from unaware to more and more aware uh, to get self knowledge and knowledge about the world um, yeah i'm I'm curious what um what what got you on the track of philosophy
0: well i'd like to first echo back what you said mm. that i don't mm. Consider myself to be a philosopher. I, sometimes it gets tweeted or said about me. They say the Bitcoin philosopher, which I'm okay with. If people want to call me that, it's fine. But sometimes they say self-proclaimed or calls <laughs> himself a philosopher, and I'm like, please well, don't say that.
2: That's yeah, yeah, <laughs>
0: not true, and right. um, doesn't sound right. So.
1: Oh, if anyone calls me Think Boy, I'm gonna wear that with. <laughs> that'll be. I'll take it. I'll. I'll. I'll put it on a T-shirt.
0: I've had a couple of Think Boys thrown at me too, and <laughs> had to go to had to go to Urban Dictionary or whatever to figure out what it meant. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I just consider myself extremely curious, and I always have been. Um, and once I picked up the tool of linguistics, you know, and specifically reading on your own, kind of like at the age of. I guess eleven or twelve, and I started to seriously read. I've just been trying to satisfy that curiosity, right? Just reading different things. For me, it started with astronomy and astrophysics. I was like, "What in the world is all this?" And then it's um, as I got older and became more about economics, what's going on in the world, world history, et cetera. But my like specifically, where I'm, I'm weak in this topic is I haven't even read the Western canon. You know, I haven't read Plato. I haven't read Aristotle. Spinoza, Heidegger, all of these guys. There's so much I haven't read. I actually have a list put together. Uh, it's from a book called. The book's title is How to Read a Book. It sounds like a terrible book, but it's actually really good. And they recommend they have the Western canon sort of um, outlined. And they're like, I think it's if you read, don't quote me on it, but I think it's a couple of hours of day, a couple of hours per day. You can get through this reading list in like four or five years, and it's basically the whole thing, right? Like all all of Western civilization in a reading list. I've read maybe one percent of that, so it's like, no, I'm not a philosopher. I'm just a guy trying to learn. Um, but I think I am philosophical by nature. My friends have always made fun of me that two things: one, that I like to do homework. So that was, you know, I've always, again, just been curious. I like to read, I like to write, um, and then two that I could never have—I wasn't good at small talk. Basically, it's always some deep conversation about whatever. So this idea of so serious, I mean, Robert. Why
1: are you always so serious? <laughs> Did you hear that?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I do have a sense of humor. I don't show it enough on this show, but I'll try to be better at that. But this idea of having inquiry into the fundamental nature of things. I mean, like you said, that's almost like your human purpose in some ways. Like we, we are the animal that can deal with knowledge in a way that no other animal can. So it makes sense that we would scavenge for that knowledge, right? Or inquire into reality and nature and logic and all these things and try to extract it. Um, so it's very enjoyable just the pursuit, I think of, again, satisfying that curiosity, but, Mm. um, I read this recently this is a quote I don't know who said it the basically the usefulness of knowledge is always in action right it's it, it's not so helpful to just know a thing if it doesn't have some practical praxeological application of some kind right otherwise you're just <laughs> what is it it's like intellectual masturbation <laughs> like it doesn't serve any purpose um and so i think with bitcoin what's so crazy about bitcoin is it It's so, I mean, seemingly impossible to get your hands around it and it shatters your worldview on multiple levels. It's like, well, you thought you knew what money was or you thought you knew what property was or the state or the way the world works, et cetera. It's like Bitcoin's like a pebble thrown into that glass house, I guess. And then you're left kind of picking up the pieces. (laughs) And when you're picking up the pieces, you're like, well, this structure that I used, this prism that I use to evaluate the world doesn't work anymore. It's broken. So now I have to reestablish my philosophical anchor points to the world and like rebuild a new worldview. So I think, I mean, that's the best uh, articulation I can get for like why philosophy and Bitcoin are so deeply mm-hmm. interrelated and very important because yeah. if Bitcoin does succeed, like everything changes. Yeah. And when everything yeah. changes... Yeah, it really to like
1: i like speaking to the old the paradigm you're talking about the glass house you know like i was very uh what's the word uh, gloomy about you know the the future of the world because i was reading about these these economic cycles that was like my my early research and uh and i translated this book about the history of banking and all that and it just seemed like this forever repeating cycle of you know, they get their act together. There's like full reserve banks and then it devolves. And then there's more, you know, money printing. And and um, and now we live in a purely digital age. So I was like, oh no, this is even more of a nightmare because then we're going to have, the world is going to be like Argentina where every 10 years, there's just a reset. Um, so it's just so depressing. And then Bitcoin was like, whoa, like that gave me hope. It was like, whoa. Um, and and I guess to to you know, what it started in the very beginning for me, philosophy was, uh, I was terribly depressed when I was 15, 16. Uh, and, and one of the main things that, that, that made me feel stuck was determinism. I just, I was, I was struggling with like, am I destined to be, you know, become this person, you know, to be like, these people that I see in my everyday life, you know, uh, to, to, to get the same kind of afflictions and problems. And, uh, and, and I, I felt stuck in that. And then it ultimately it was like, okay, realizing I could just kill myself. Like that's a genuine option. And then it was like, but, but that was so, um, horrifying. Like that just, you know, really mm-hmm. in, imagining it, you know, doing that. And and then, Weirdly, that was like the ultimate, like it crystallized the fact that well, I have a choice. I can do this or not. And also, it kind of like everything, everything else became less scary because it was kind of like I have nothing left to lose. Uh, But so really, like bringing down, like really kind of that point of like oh, like I have a choice. And so that means, and that's kind of what you're saying. I think what you're saying about Bitcoin is like all everything is shattered. But now it's like I gotta build it up again. It's like, okay, well, what if I do have free will? Well, what does that mean? It's like I, I don't know how to do that. I know how to do depressed and determined, you know. I know that, but I don't know this other life. So, so that to me is where like philosophy became, you know, part of what I used to, and and like 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 reading Mises, you know, the Human Action when I was like in my early twenties. Uh, I think yeah, early twenties. He's just like. You know he just says like determinism is bullshit you know science is real we the truth actually exists like these basic things and he takes them serious and actually spells it out you know like his Mm -hmm. take on that and it was so validating i just like it just like blew me away the first like 200 pages of that book was like Thank you. Like, you know, science, not not in the woke sense, you know, science is real, but like in in the sense of like, man, like this stuff is actually, you know, the fabric of our world. You know, we can actually do stuff with this. It's the blueprint of everything that's good and and right in the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well said. And and lucky you for discovering human action in your 20s. Um, I didn't get that. Yeah. Very lucky. until my early thirties and it is it's a very difficult book but so much in there so much in there i needed to have it again because i I, i've been
1: moving so often but i i got me another copy again it's it's nice to to have it
0: nice how many times have you been through it
1: uh, the new one, I've just been browsing it. It's just it yes. feels good because it's it's the exact same you know font. It's just the old print, you know. So yeah. it's it's uh, but yeah, a friend of mine actually he he printed it in like five because it was free on, online. So he just printed it in five little binders. So I would like, you know, I would work at like a theme park and like just put people in little boats and like read a little more. <laughs> it really, like it it was it was amazing. Yeah,
0: that's that is. Wonderful. And, um, thank you for sharing about the, the suicide thought because that is, I mean, it's very powerful. And it's interesting there that you discovered the power of choice ultimately. Right. It's like you grant, it's almost like hitting a rock bottom of just like deciding what you want to do. I was like, well, do you want to live or die? That's kind of your first most fundamental choice before you make any other choice. Um, and also embedded there, I think this is the philosophy that I have read a lot of is Eastern philosophy. So Sun Tzu, Musashi, Lao Tzu, all those guys. One of them said the way of the warrior is the resolute acceptance of death. So there's something about like really taking in that reality that you're mortal. It's all going to end. There's something so powerful about that Mm -hmm. in in determining what you want to do. Right. So, because I don't know, the, the the singularness of it or the one shot or the, you know, cre- creating something that echoes in the lives of others, you know, the meaningfulness of your life. And it's interesting yeah. that both of those things are kind of, they hit, to have the suicidal thought, you're looking at the power of choice and then the acceptance of death at the <clears throat> same time.
1: Yeah. Like I, I've heard, um, I've heard it say that like, um, like the most painful thing to lose is illusions. You know, your illusions about the world, like that's the most painful thing. And so if you can lose the illusion that you're going to live forever or that, you know, y- you can know for sure that you're not going to run under a bus tomorrow. Like, if you can lose that illusion, there's something really powerful to that. Because then it's like, well, that pain is not going to, you, you you work through it once, you know, or maybe yes. repeatedly. But, but, you know, that's not something somebody can, that's not a pebble somebody can throw at you.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. And then if you accept, if you can dispel that illusion, I think you're well-equipped to then go into the world and deal with other, there's so many illusions we're dealing with, right? That's one of the things Bitcoin does. It shatters all yeah. of these illusions.
1: Yeah. Which is why yeah. some, some people are so staunch at being an O-coiner, right? I mean, they, it's too painful for them to, to cross the chasm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, I would argue the reason the state is able to coordinate the movements of people through fear. Like if, if the population in general, and you see this, right. If in a cohort of the population that's deeply religious or deeply spiritual, I'm thinking of like the Bible belt in the U S you know, those people put G O D above Gov. So it's harder to corral those people with fear when i was in oh i see yeah, yeah. i was trying I was to just in trying to uh
1: spell out G O D, and i was thinking too far <laughs> got it got it
0: god um, versus
1: government
0: got it yeah exactly so i was in nashville for a wedding six or eight months ago you know peak mask psychosis and no one gave a shit no one's wearing a mask everyone knows it's pretend like everyone knows it's a boogeyman at least in my experience, maybe I was in some biased niche of Nashville, but it seemed like everywhere I went, no one was wearing a mask. Everyone was just getting on with their life. Um, But then like flying through LA on the way there, (laughs) totally different scene, right? People are triple masked. Everyone's freaking out when you get close to them. Like they're living in this illusion. Right. And you could argue, Oh, is it illusion? Is it not? I think it's, I think it is. I think it's a flu, basically. Yeah, and, and you can argue in different stages of the pandemic
1: or whatever, but ultimately, yeah. you know, if you see extremely different reactions, group reactions to the exact same situation on the same day, yeah. well, that's saying something about one of those groups or, or maybe yes. both.
0: Yes, yes, exactly. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess when you can accept the reality of death, you can overcome fear. And if you can overcome fear, you can resist psychological manipulation like if you don't fear yeah it it it's, like, your life. it's like in a way
1: it's like rather than overcome it's almost like you know it's like the, the fear doesn't need to materialize you know you can just mm-hmm. kind of accept and like it just it's like something that washes over you rather than you know that you have to hide from because you think it's going to destroy you
0: yes yes because exactly. fear you know i don't know i think
1: everybody always has some fear somehow
0: of course you, I don't mm. think you can be courageous without the sensation of fear. <laughs> it's, I mean, cur- courage is not lack of fear. I think courage is just the willingness, the choice, if you will, to yeah. face fear.
2: To do it afraid.
0: Yeah. And it's my, you know, I heard a really good, this is from a boxing coach one time. I was doing a little bit of amateur boxing and it's very, you're very scared when you get in the ring and someone's punching you in the face, like you have nerves, you know, oh, you lose your yeah. training and all that. And he said something, his name was Ace Miller. He said something to me one time after a training session. He said, fear is like a fire. If it's uncontrolled, it will burn you up. But to control it is essential to life. So it's like, you need to harness that energy Mm -hmm. of fear and then, you know, I guess approach it courageously and then channel it. Uh, And I think, like when you do public speaking, a lot of people feel a lot of fear, especially at the beginning when you first get started. But to harness that energy, to harness harness that nervousness mm-hmm. or whatever it is, put it into your talk. Yep. that's what gives it, you know, um, resonance or something. So it's not like it's something you're trying to avoid or forget about. Yeah, you just need yeah. to learn to deal with it and channel it.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of the the Aristotelian mean, where you know you could probably put fear on that and be like, okay, the one extreme is panic, and the other extreme is. Uh, what's the word again where you you're just um you pretend it's not there kind of like uh just
0: um, denial or something
1: uh recklessness or something like that mm-hmm. you know well you just uh and, and and you know what you want to be in the middle where it's like yeah this is scary it's it's okay to feel fear and then and then it like uh it's it's like just part of your your engine you know part of what what, what is just, uh, you know, cause I like, for example, this conversation I had, like, I definitely worked through fear about it. And I was like, you know, Oh, it's like talking about philosophy. And then, you know, but I definitely had like stages and like, it's still somewhere there, but uh I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to not like, I don't know. I feel like I would just be less authentic if I pretended it wasn't there, you know, like, Oh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not nervous what are you talking about? The Brits are like that. Oh, what are you talking about? I'm not nervous. And then like, that's, that's faulty towers. Like, you know,
0: in a nutshell, that's Mm. the illusion, right? Yeah. 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 So on this topic, this is interesting. I've Mm. just been playing around in my mind recently where I'm trying to get to the root of fiat itself. And I don't mean just fiat currency. I mean the idea of, because I said so, like because an authority mm-hmm. said to do something mm-hmm. is why you should do it under the veiled threat of something, coercion, violence, compulsion. So clearly f- to be controlled by fiat is a response from fear, right? You're, if someone tells you what to do and it's not something you voluntarily chose to do, you would only comply out of fear of something. Mm-hmm. But I think the, also the expression of fiat is an expression of fear. Where someone's like, "to to I'm scared what you would do on your own, so you better do what I say instead." Something like that. Right. Have you thought about that much the the relationship between fiat? Yeah, and fiat?
1: I mean, I, I'm thinking off the top of my head because I haven't tried to put it that way. Um, like, I think there's different. Um, different things that people do with fear and I, I quite like the you know fight, flight, freeze, fawn, like that kind of uh, I don't know if you're familiar, but that's like in, in psychology and in therapy, like people often talk about it because they're like different you know fear responses in a way. Um, and I, ultimately you could say like fear is like, well, your, your system is encountering something it doesn't want. And it's immediately trying to, you know, get away from it. Um, and I think even like anger is often layered on top of fear. Like anger is the protector of the fear. Uh, so so it, it almost makes it like a bigger emotion than what you would superficially think. Like, oh, fear is when you're shaking. And it's like, well, I think sometimes people look very angry when, when they're trying to protect know the thing that's feeling vulnerable um but so yeah and so and so the fear responses to me to me freeze is and and maybe we'll get into it later but like we i I think maybe maybe we should better park it and talk about it once uh if if we're going to hit on the four causes of conflict and and then the four universal solutions because to me that's that overlaps you know there's there's four universal strategies to to get out of the conflict to get back to peace or or stability and so to me those four f's they they map onto that um so i I don't want to like lose listeners to all all of a sudden dive into this technical thing
0: yeah perfect we'll work our way towards it um so perhaps now's a good time for this second question (laughs) of what what are good approaches to studying philosophy do you have are you methodical about it or are you more i guess flexible or carefree like or somewhere in the middle how do you yeah. how do you approach philosophy
1: i i one of the things that i noticed when i was like trying to do because before we started recording we were talking about like you know that and, and for me it's the same you know I, what have we read of the western canon you know very little if we really you know look at all the books that we haven't read um the the classic so to speak um and so I remember as a teenager being like you know Anna Karenina or whatever you know like giving myself the, the the task of like you know going through it and I would I would give up and I would feel bad about myself like I would I would start and I would just not be able to finish it and and then and I would try that over and over and um and eventually, I just really, it helped to embrace that I didn't have to do that. You know, I can, I can browse, I can, I can find a chapter that I'm, that really resonates with me. And I can read chapters in different books, just because I'm thinking about this one topic. Um, I can, I can read um, synopses, you know, like important works very, very often have like readers, you know, it's like some professor who's been studying it for 10 years, gives like his summary of that book you know and and i i think it's one of the fallacies is that if you go to university is that you only read the reader of one guy you never read the source material and you think you know what it is you know and it's usually a very kind of bland destillation and especially in universities i went to it, it felt like it was almost like uh, take, the, the the sharp edges were taken off. You know, it's like oh, you know, this is what that is, and it's a safe way to because because we're already like oh yeah, this is what that is because because this guy is the opposite of what the next guy said, and you know, and then it's like well, but but the guy who wrote it didn't even know that there's gonna be a next guy. So like, you know, what am I really learning here? Um, so so I remember asking um, um, like my, who I consider my mentor, who's van uh, den in uh in Belgium asking him like so what what like about history in particular it's like what should I read you know for the history of this period and he was kind of like it was sweet like he was just kind of saying like uh you just gotta read a lot you know there there is no shortcut it's really like you 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 as and as you read you develop your um your compass for what is a good book and what is not you know what is because once you see some gold nuggets, then you raise the bar. And it's like, oh, all of a sudden, now this is what I expect from a summary or from a historian or, or this or that. Um, so it's kind of like, to me, it's, it's about trusting your gut and, and really, um, and, 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 and being irreverent, uh, mm-hmm. you know, going to the source material. But oh, one of the things that even only recently, I was like, damn, like, why didn't I pay more attention to this? is the quality of the translation. Like, if you're going to mm-hmm. read a book, read the classics, the Greeks, it matters a huge amount who is translating it. Really, it's like, not night and day, but it's like very significant differences. Uh, and like for, for Aristotle, for example, I'm just sticking with one. I stick with Joe Sachs. I love him. I love his, his approach, his, his take on things, his introductions. And so I don't know if I'll, I'll keep on doing that. But, um, but, but, but so... I don't know, like those are kind of my, I, I, it's basically why I wanted to talk about this is like, I think it's so important to, to like, make this stuff less intimidating, because to me, it was a barrier. It was like, oh, but there is only one way, you know, you need to go to university and listen to this. What if he's boring, you know, whoever mm-hmm. professor is teaching that course, uh, you know, it's too bad if he would ruin the whole subject for you.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So Do you yeah, I'm mean-
1: yeah, go ahead.
0: Um, yeah, I'll share some stuff about but I'd like to ask you first, do you do, do you try to read a certain amount per day or per week? Do you set aside a certain time of day that you do your reading or is it just uh, on instinct or something like that?
1: It's something I want to, uh, like build it as my life gets more stable. I, I want that more. um, um there are periods in my life where I, I didn't, I wouldn't read any books like long periods um, just mostly because I was working through, you know, trauma stuff or therapy stuff. And, and it's just like, my life is just all about emotional work here and now. And, and or like you're building a business, you know, and it's just like, there's just no uh, which I, I don't think has to be true. You know, there's no time, you know, but, but right. and I, I, so I guess the short answer is no. Uh, I, I try to like, I try to sense if there are times when I really I'm feeling it and then I just, you know, I'm I'm in it for eight hours a day, just nonstop reading, researching, writing. Um, and then there's other periods where it's more like, you know, take off the pressure and, and it's about re-recharging re, and and more and also like orientation, like what do I want to do next? So I feel like if you're if you're reading to just tick off, like, oh, here's another title, here's another one that I read. And it's like, okay, well, what about, what do you want to do? Like, that's not going to be in a book. Like, what do you mm-hmm. want to know? You know, uh, what do you care about? You know, to me, so that's why I try to really be okay with not, not um, being myself over the head if, if I'm not reading enough or right. being more disciplined about it. But eventually I do want to get there because I, I think there is a lot of power and habit and consistency. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, To respond to that particular point, I've I've had periods in my life where I was very regimented about it. Um, Much more so before having my daughter. (laughs) Uh, Life was a little simpler back then as far as schedule and all of that. Um, But now I think the one consistent thing I do is I read every night. In bed, I have a Kindle, so I can lay there and read in bed. I do that basically every night, um, and it, you know, it helps me fall asleep. And clearly, yep. I enjoy it. Um, but I, like you, I have this goal of getting to—if I'm ever going to read this Western canon thing, it's like, like I said, I think it's two hours of reading per day for five years. Like, that's no joke. You have to actually carve out some time and do that. Um, trying to get more stability in my life to do that. Uh, and and to your point, it's not like I don't have the time. It's a matter of prioritization. I am kind of building a business right now. I'm also being a dad to a young daughter and all of that. So, um, it's complicated to say the least, but a couple of things that have helped me with this approach to this, I guess this is an approach to reading and studying in general but a lot of that is in the domain of philosophy for me because that's where my interest is but uh and i think i got this i was inspired by naval actually i always had this tendency to want to read far and wide and read a lot of books at once but i had some conditioning from my youth i guess school maybe that i should really like finish what you start like open a book finish a book open a book finish a book resist that urge to read other things And then, I don't know, Naval, whatever, a tweet or a podcast or something. was like, no, read whatever you want. Read far and wide. Taleb as well. Taleb's books. He's like, no, I have thousands of unread books. You know, read a little bit. Just give yourself this freedom, like true freedom to just like have a disciplined approach, but also don't be afraid to deviate from it and follow your interests or follow your intuition or whatever, you know, don't be afraid to start in the middle of a book, skip around, yeah, you know, not finish the book, whatever. Um, I think all that's, that's very powerful that also that book that I mentioned, how to read a book, they talk about synoptic reading, which there's a, there's a, there's an approach. Basically you're reading the table of contents, then you're reading the index and then you're determining like, okay, what how does this fit into what I'm doing right now? And then you can be a little more targeted in that book. You don't have to go cover to cover. Maybe you jump into the two or three chapters and jump out. Those like um, um,
1: look at the map before starting the journey kind of thing.
0: Yeah, exactly. Getting a mm-hmm. lay of the land and then picking your spots, which is extremely powerful because there's some books, you know, some books may be terrible in the first chapter or a few chapters and then have some real nuggets later on. Well, you might just miss that if you get ground out in the first few chapters. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, Another thing that really helped me was speed reading. I just did this very simple course. I think it's on, if you Google Tim Ferriss speed reading course, it's like a free 30 minute course. You learn how to do it. It's really just about eye movement. I'm not going to say you leave the 30 minute course being able to speed read, but you get the basics. And then if you mm-hmm. apply that and practice it for a number of months, you can get really good at it. And so now I have this skill. It's a tool really. You can, I can throttle up my, the speed at which I'm reading or throttle down. If I'm reading something like human action by Mises, I have to throttle way down. Yeah. Cause it's extremely dense. Yeah, every, every, word. every sentence
1: is like so dense. Then. Yeah. Yes.
0: But then if you're reading a, I don't know, a magazine or something, you can just fly through it. You know, you can read yeah. a page in 30 seconds or something. Um, yeah. The, the, the,
1: the, what you're talking about definitely, definitely resonates for me. Like at any given time, there's like 20 books and I'm just in the process of reading. Um, and, uh, and I, I remember studying speed reading too, at some point. Um, and, and I, I think uh, some, something about the attitude I think stuck with me where it's like, uh you kind of like shedding the what's drilled into you that you got to just this is how to read you know mm-hmm. it's like no, no no there's there's different ways and, and depending on your need you can you can kind of like you say throttle up or throttle down mm-hmm. um one other thing that uh i found that i'm gravitating towards is um is i love secondhand bookstores way more than i do like Just, I guess, regular bookstores where it's like, oh, here's the latest, the New York Times bestseller list, like to the point where if there's a book that people on Twitter talk a lot about, I'm not going to read it. Like, it's almost like, because I feel like that vibe, that's already the zeitgeist. And so it's like, is that really going to teach, which maybe that's pretentious or something, but like finding books that are kind of like forgotten, there's Mm -hmm. something about that, that really, um, it just to me it makes it like fresh or something or it's like i also feel like i'm like a treasure hunter or something like i'm like finding something that is not on anybody's radar including mine and so maybe uh there's something really there right um so so that's been definitely a pattern for me is like just i love those secondhand bookstores
0: yeah i can i big time agree on the older books but not only the classics but even just Old, like text, they're just older books that they seem to be. There's so much treasure, so many nuggets in there, right? That a lot of people don't know. Like, Human Action is a great example.
1: <laughs> human Action, yeah, written, in in what, what, 50s, what? written in the early 60s, I think. And, and it was, was actually, it, it was it? actually his, uh, him just rewriting what he already wrote in German 20 years before.
0: Right. Uh, the original yeah. was in 49, I think, and then he rewrote it for English.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's probably, you know, of course, he he probably would disagree that it's just a rewrite. But because uh, yeah. after 20 years, but still, you know, it, it, uh, and it was his he, he, English was like his fourth language or something. Yeah. Yeah. It must have been this Herculean effort in his, in his 60s to write that.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> and you can tell when you read the book, it's very Germanic and the way he handles like neologisms like what is that word <laughs> yeah but it's so damn good it's really incredible um, and he does not parse words there's no wasted words i don't yeah. think there are any wasted words in that book
1: Well, his uh, brother is a mathematician maybe that you know is something that was in the family of like don't waste people's time get to yeah. the point
0: yeah and he's an economist so he can't be wasting people's time
1: <laughs> <laughs> well some um,
0: do. <laughs> yeah well modern that's all they do right um, But I, I don't know. I've developed quite the affinity for older books. And this is probably something I also picked up from Taleb. He goes through, I've read all his five books. I read Antifragile twice, but he mentions a lot of the authors that he reads and their classics. And, right. Um, well, don't and, be afraid. I think yeah, there's more ahead. value there going into the past than it is trying to stick to books that are presently published. I found a lot more value going into the past. Mm.
1: Yeah. And I was just going to add something for me too, is like to, to, for me to realize that like my, my book collection is it's like optionality. Like that's what I'm buying. If I buy a book, it's the option to read it at any time. If I'm doing research, because like there, there was a golden age where Google scanned like almost everything, including newspapers, but that's gone. You know, you can't just find things online oftentimes. And just to have it in your home knowing like, Oh, I'm, I have like I don't know ten books about the history of this. Like so let's let's have a look. That to me is is the value of a book collection,
0: rather yes. than feeling bad
1: like oh like all these books I'm never going to be able to read.
0: Right. Yeah. It's like just like the sats you're stacking. You're probably not going to spend them all over. But yeah, good, good point. Good to have that wealth, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the thing I'd add here is just a general approach to studying our philosophies. I think. The thinking is a big deal, right? And we probably just do this second nature. I think I've always been a bit of a thinker myself. That's probably what predisposes people towards this path in the first place, being curious or thinking a lot. But I found that, and this is thanks to my daughter, thanks to my girlfriend, like the idea of talking through what you're thinking about. Like she, my girlfriend does a really good job of pulling it out of me. She's always like, Oh, what, you know, what are you talking about? What are you thinking about What are you working on? That's a whole nother ball game because you now have to take, you can understand it one way. You might have a good visual or intuitive grasp of it, but to then try to transform that into an, a coherent articulation that someone foreign to the concepts can digest. That's like a whole nother art form in and of yeah, itself. It's really hard but it there's a refinement and there's like, once you can do that, or maybe in that process, you might discover a new nugget that then feeds back into your own mental model. Right. And so, so this idea of like reading, writing, and then talking about it creates this crystallized understanding of things that I think is just unrivaled.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like you're hardening it or something like that, or, or you're like yeah. developing it in, in a way that you couldn't, if you're just thinking. Also, I, I remember, uh, being surprised like Mises wrote somewhere like if if you want to learn something about a subject like write a book about it it's like so casual just, like, just write a book about it you know
2: yeah um,
1: so I mean and, and you can doesn't have to be a book but you know you can like just write drafts and sometimes I have like five different drafts over the years and then and it, it all adds to you know my own understanding of things
0: yeah <clears throat> yeah I would say for me personally i don't know about you but writing is extremely difficult just it doesn't ever seem to get easier really i
1: hate it uh, yeah <laughs> i really do yeah although there is there is a there is some moments sometimes where it's like i'm ready and and it just
0: falls. it just down. all
1: comes out and there is That is really satisfying when when it's almost like you've been constipated and then finally, you know, (laughs) it's
0: it's like relief. Like, yes, yeah, it's exactly like that. But you almost, I mean, I there's no laxative for it really, it just happens sometimes, you know. Yeah, you gotta, yeah,
1: you gotta. Although, yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to learn. I do think there is something like the same. We're talking, I think uh, Hayek had a thing where. I guess as you age you just want to have the habits more and so he would just write for two hours every day or something mm. which to me is like but maybe once you're 70 or 60 it's like yes there's a lot there that you can just you know write down right uh, but still for me it's like I, I don't know I don't I, I, it's hard for me to get to the point where I feel like I really have something to say to write down
0: yeah how do you so on the topic of writing do you I try to do, I try to do this. I don't do this perfectly at all, but to just write when I'm writing to like get out this really rough draft of whatever. I'll also outline a little bit. I may outline and write at the same time. So I have some structural idea of what I'm writing, but it's a really messy process. It's a disaster. Mm -hmm. It's the worst part of writing because it just feels like a mess.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Then I try to edit and refine and I do a lot of that. And in the final stages of edit and refining, I'm actually reading it out loud to myself something I learned from Peterson is like, there's something it's one thing to read it quietly to yourself and edit. Yeah. It's a whole nother thing to read it out loud. Yeah. And then I publish, how do you, do you have a, a, an approach to writing?
1: It's similar. Yeah. I would say it's similar. I, I got me this, uh, this like old fashioned, well, it's, it's a modern product, but basically it's an old fashioned typewriter. Uh, that's the idea where well, there's no internet on it. There's no nothing. You just, you know, you just type and, uh, and you can store, you can send it to yourself in an email and that's it. Um, and so that you then you have that distraction free, just you know, dumping the draft. And uh, there's not even a cursor, there's a little screen, but there's not even a cursor to go up in the text, which is funny. So you have if you're not satisfied with the paragraph, you either have to delete all of it with the backspace or you just rewrite it underneath it. Um, so that I'm like discovering more and more like there's power in, in, in like very limited, workspaces you know uh i used to think like oh i just i just need one laptop and that's it i can do anything but there's sometimes power and or i do a lot on paper you know i just i have like outlines and notes and i might hang it on the wall for just kind of like you know passing by and thinking about it more um <clears throat> but yeah the reading aloud definitely definitely uh it started when i was like preparing for presentations and stuff i'd be like read aloud to myself but i find that the best prose or whatever the best writing comes out quite beautifully in spoken word like it's it it can be you know there's something there uh when something doesn't sound right it's probably not gonna be very pleasant to read either
0: right yes exactly Yeah, agreed on that. Um
1: So I always write read my tweets out I don't I don't. That's, <laughs> that's an exception. Like tweets are like they're like the early I should maybe be more careful with my tweets, but I am pretty uh I'm pretty quick to just hit publish.
0: Yeah, well, that's kind of the incentive scheme over there in Twitterverse. The <clears throat> um So this is an interesting topic and I don't the question is, what is philosophy of law? How is it different from economics? Mm. One of my light bulb moments in a recent conversation with Stefan Kinsella, who I'm sure you're familiar mm. with. Oh, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: Um, you know, I, I always knew this old adage that possession is nine-tenths of the law. But he made the point that really the rule of law exists <laughs> in its entirety to you know, resolve conflict, obviously, but conflict is always over scarce resources of some kind by definition. So it really, the rule of law grounds out in property. Ultimately, the rule of law exists to serve property disputes, disputes over property and resources. So um, I don't know, that's just something I've been thinking about, not really a question, but how, what is, how do you define the philosophy of law?
1: Oh, I wish I had prepared a definition, but but like uh, I, I to me, I think it's still broader. If I think I disagree with Kinsella. and it's it's actually interesting that he actually clashed with Frank Van Den You know, back in the in the nineties and two thousands, uh, because he's very uh, anti intellectual property, like he doesn't believe in mm-hmm. it. Uh, and then Van Den has some some articles where he points out some. Um, some things that show that it's, it's, things are not that obvious, you know, for example, uh, what if I write, uh, you know, an intimate love letter to my, you know, beloved and, uh, and then you intercept that and you copy it and you spread it all over the internet. And then you allow the the physical letter to continue is that, Oh, you didn't violate my property, you know? So Mm -hmm. it's like, supposedly everything's fine. Uh, or, you know, you can go really quite extreme. You can be like, well, you know, I own my hand, I own my finger, I own my gun, and so mm-hmm. I should be allowed to squeeze that trigger whenever I want, you know. And then so, mm-hmm. or, or encirclement. You know, that's another one. It's like, what if I, 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 I buy land around somebody's property and I encircle them, and then I say, sorry, you know, you, you, you can't access your land because it's my property uh, and then you could say technically well you know that's a dispute about property but it's still you know it, it's almost like a meta you know no you're talking about rights that go beyond because because if if it was purely about that maybe Walter Block would say well you know this the guy has to get a helicopter and you know land on his own property that way or but it's like yeah, that's not if you look at how law has evolved over you know in and in, in, in existed that, that doesn't seem like the best. So anyway, so, so to go back to, um, like, what is philosophy of law? I, I, I think it's about, ultimately, it's about uh, how can humans live together? in know, how can we have order in society in a way that does not undermine or fundamentally violate the fact that we are individual, autonomous, Human beings, you know, because because mm-hmm. it's easy to come up with schemes that create order, but it's very hard to create schemes that create order and allow for individual liberty, individual, like self actualization, those kind of things. Uh, and so that to me is like what philosophy is about. It's like what are the what are the the the, the different modes of conflict resolution that exist, and uh, and then you know, can we say something reasonable about when to apply which you might be even going into law already once you start thinking about applying, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but, and so out of philosophy of law comes political philosophy. It's like, you know, what are, because political philosophy is all about how to organize society. Um, You know, what what is most important, you know, is property right more important or is, is uh, equality more important or income, you know, all the, all the, or, um, or, um, you know, um, unity, those kind of things. So, so that, that's kind of a, a very, I don't know how understandable of a take it is, but I would say, yeah, look, the, the, the challenge of creating order in society while still respecting individual rights, that is the task of philosophy of law. And that's very different from economics, and I think, I think there's a lot of economists who think, oh, we don't need all that philosophy, we can just think about you know what is the most efficient way to do things, but that's utilitarianism. It's like the greatest mm-hmm. whatever happiness, the greatest wealth for the most amount of people. Well, that means you've already chosen a track within the umbrella of philosophy of law. So the you're basically cheating, right? You're you're, mm-hmm. you're 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 just saying you already chose it, and then you're saying let's not talk about it anymore. But it's like no, no, no. Mm-hmm. Let's open the discussion. We need to talk about this first before you economists can give us all your
0: recommendations. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Um, this is probably a good place to start going into property a little bit. So I guess the first thing I would say is there, there seems to be correct me if I'm wrong here, but there's okay. So people acting in the world, there's always more want than there is ability to satisfy that want. Um, as I've described, like the human, the human heart is basically insatiable, right? Yeah. No matter what you give yeah. us, we always want more. Like that's just how it is. Um, so to resolve then these, this, this limitless demand mm-hmm. over limited supply, right? Yeah. We have to allocate the supply. We can do that. I think there's only one of two ways really. It's like by contract, which is two parties mutually agreeing to, you know, exchange something, exchange property or conflict and conflict is just its force, right? To go and take someone's property or, or whatever. But, but the paradox here perhaps is that contract itself, like a contract's really only enforceable in the shadow of the law, right? Like we can agree, we can, you and I can agree to a certain contract to exchange two types or two certain forms of property. But if one of us, um, you know, doesn't fulfill the conditions of the contract, then the other counterparty to the contract needs recourse to some form of force or coercion, right. To enforce compliance with the mutually agreed upon terms of the contract. So I get stuck in this when I try to think about this It's like, okay, yeah we could do it all by contract. We wouldn't need any conflict, but you need the conflict to enforce the contract, at least the threat of conflict to enforce the contract.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's what I was getting into, you know, head to head about, uh, yesterday on Twitter where it was the, the words were different, but I think it's the same issue, which is like justice versus war. You know, uh, do we, do we need war to enforce, you know, just society, um, and, uh, and that's almost the paradox It's like, well, but you know, yeah. So, so I, 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 I appreciate that. I think what you're presenting is like a paradox. Uh, do you agree or no?
0: I think so. I mean, my current thinking on it. Yeah. And, you know, it gets a little bit different with things like Bitcoin, because presumably that's sort of a self enforcing contract in a way it's like, it's just possession of the Bitcoin. There's nothing else to fight over. It's like, do you have it or not? <laughs> uh, Let, I would suggest, that, that let's, let's go other in. Oh, go ahead. Rights, clearly.
1: I didn't hear it, sorry.
0: I was just saying that uh, that would be specific to Bitcoin. We would still have this paradox with all other uh, property relationships between For owners sure. and uh, tangible forms. Well, and even in Bitcoin, there can
1: be all kinds of ways that people lose control of their Bitcoin or yeah. you know, th- there's all kinds of conflicts possible. Um but, but, I would suggest we we park the paradox and we go into the causes of conflict and the, the universal solutions to conflict, and then we return to the paradox and see if we get some more clarity on that.
0: Okay, let's do that.
1: Okay, well, so um I'm excited because this is this is something that I, I learned from from van he's a, just to give a bit more you know, a bit more context to, to him as a person, you know, uh, philosopher of law, um, He uh, discovered, I want to say, uh, argumentation ethics or rediscovered it or, or you know really refined it because th- there are some traces of it throughout history. But um, in, in the early 80s, he developed um, argumentation ethics, which is basically, the, a foundation for property rights, like a, a way to, a philosophical foundation for property rights. Cause that's always the question is like, you know, what? why would I, res, do I need to respect the fact that you own this land? You know, where does that come from? So it's, it's, it's been, especially among libertarians, it's one of the hot button issues because it's, it's, we need to justify that we believe in this stuff. It's not just arbitrary. Um, and so he came up with it in the early eighties and then Hoppe, uh, I think independently um, also came up with it five-ish years later um, in in the early '90s, I think. And then often Hoppe, Hans Hoppa. Um, he's the his famous book is uh, "Democracy: The God That Failed," Austrian economist yeah. from. I think he's from Germany, right? I'm not. I'm not sure. I think he's German. I, th-
0: I think so. Uh, yeah, we. I did that book is excellent. "Democracy: The God That Fell." Jimmy Song yeah. and I did a series on it. Yeah.
1: Oh, very cool. Yeah. So, so Hans Hoppe popularized it and, and now is often credited with, you know, argumentation ethics, but actually it actually, goes back to London. Um, and, uh, he wrote this, his treatise as uh, the fundamental principle of law, which is too bad. It's only in Dutch available, uh, but it's phenomenal. And eventually we'll probably translate it to, uh, to English. So, but we would organize seminars with him and, um, just it was just uh, amazing to learn from 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 him, uh, and and he he did join a lot of Austrian conferences over the years, and it's it's funny because he came he basically was reading uh, you know scholastic literature all kinds of stuff, and uh, and and became um, uh, Mises style classical liberal even uh, Rothbard style anarcho capitalist, and then eventually discovered that there's a whole literature about that and he he finally knew how to call himself um but so so as a philosopher of law he he was just kept thinking about okay well we want to resolve conflict well what are the universal causes of conflict what causes conflict in general and so he came up and i haven't been able to break it i think it's 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 rock solid that there are four necessary causes for any kind of conflict ever Um, and i think we can best explain it with an example Uh, so we just need to find something that's desirable i don't know maybe like a steak or something is that sound good or
0: i don't know
1: (laughs) yeah let's do steak all right Um, so so okay so let's say steak okay so what do we need to have a conflict first of all we need to have more than one person i know that sounds very like basic but it's like if you have unity if there is only one being then there is nothing to have a conflict about so you need Mm -hmm. um um plurality so so you and i okay so we have two persons all right that's that's the first building block for a conflict we're going to need four four uh boxes to, to tick so two people all right and then we need to have um we need to have um Freedom of access. So, so well, no. Let, let's uh, let's go to um, let's go. Yeah, no. Let's let's take that freedom of access. So we need to have access to the thing that we desire. Because if you and I live in North Korea, we can like fantasize all day long about filet mignon and this and that. It, you know, it mm-hmm. doesn't matter. It could be on the moon, right? It, 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 we're not going to have an actual conflict about this. But if we're in the same room and there's a juicy steak there, we might have a fight over it. So, so that's Mm -hmm. the other thing. It's like freedom of access. And then you you kind of feel where Bitcoin is, you know, that that's where Bitcoin shines Mm -hmm. uh, because you can regulate that access really well. Uh, And then um, what we also need is um, um, diversity of opinion because if I want the stake and you want for me to have the stake, there's no conflict. If there's consensus, there's no conflict. And then finally, uh, what we also need is scarcity. Because if there's like 40 stakes in the room and they're all equally good, well, we're not going to have a conflict today. Maybe eventually, yeah. but not today. So if, if, there's, yeah. if there's abundance, there's not going to be a conflict. So, so we need to tick all the boxes. We need plurality. We need diversity of opinion. We need freedom of access. And we need scarcity. And so then, if you have – you know, by, by starting there, then you can go to, okay – or, well, what are the universal solutions to conflicts? Is basically you take away one. That's all you need. Wow. So, so, if we can take away diversity, uh, sorry, if we can take away plurality, meaning we take away the fact that we are multiple individuals with our own wills and our own autonomy, well, then that's kind of amazing. We have peace. And I think, and then that's what Van Den argues, like that is where, that's kind of the philosophy of communism, you know, that's where, mm-hmm. you know, you get this, uh, I, I was reading this book, it's it's quite amazing. Um, um, it's architecture of the Stalin era, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, it goes into just the kind of thinking that went into the, and most of this stuff was never built, which is kind of, you know, it kind of shows how dysfunctional it is because it's an illusion yeah. right you, you cannot think away um, uh, plurality but they were trying but and, and what you can end up with is this larger than life like these monumental things that strip away all humanity and they're like anthills like if you think about these structures like there's just like big blobs that are way too big and um and it it it, it d- doesn't work but if everyone tries to believe it, you can kind of weirdly make it work for a while. So anyway, that's kind of like unity. That's that's the political, the political, there's a a lot of other ways to look at unity, but from a political point of view, it would be like pretty much communism. And then you can go to, you know, um, the next way to solve conflicts would be to um, to restrict access. So instead of freedom of access, you can restrict access. And that's where technology has been amazing, right? Because having a lock on your door, having a lock on your car, um, having cryptography, you know, all those things allow us, and also even in nature, right? If you think about, um, you go from uh, these, whatever they're called, like protozoa, like just single cell mm-hmm. organisms, to like, um, to like something that lives in the ocean and actually has a hard shell, well that is restriction of access right you are a turtle right you protect yourself against the environment so mm-hmm. so of course it's related to property rights but it's kind of more primitive than that it's, it's more of a mechanical way to restrict access um i would say property rights it's actually a level higher still um so but that's that's one way you know restriction of access i can be like look um well, I don't know what I do with the stake to, you know, I don't know. I, I basically, I mean, basically I could, I could have the knife, right. And I could say, look, I'm going to, I'm going to pinch you if you try and get this. Um, so I'm restricting your ability to access the stake. So I could do something like that, like self-defense kind of thing. Um, and then the next universal solution is consensus where it's like, okay, let's, let's, let's agree. We are different people. Uh, we, we do have access to the same thing. The stake is in the room um this it's scarce there's only one but what if we can kind of work out a system where we somehow still agree maybe i have a stake today and you have one tomorrow and we do it that way so that's where you get these negotiations that's where uh like in the most primitive form it's probably like kind of like a tribal environment where people start to like be like okay well you, you get these roles like how about i'm i'm the magician guy and you can be the the lumberjack and you know and i can and he can be the tribesman and whatever um and then people feel safe with that like there's a kind of there there's a, co- a big cultural element where it's like okay like mm-hmm. like unity to me is about unconscious programming whereas a mm-hmm. uh, consensus is about conscious like we we acknowledge we're, we're separate people but we're consciously programming ourselves to agree with each other, mm-hmm. uh, and that's why, of course, when society changes a lot, well, the consensus gets all wobbly because it was it was an operating system for a reality that doesn't exist anymore. So you get all mm-hmm. kinds of conflicts. Uh, and just to not not dwell too long, but then the final um, the final solution to conflict is is uh, abundance, right? As as you you take away uh, the, the the scarcity. And, um, and and of course, you can, you can either create abundance, which is, you know, uh, a lot of the American dream is about that, you know, you just, you you start from the bootstraps, you build a company, your widget is better than cheaper than the other, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's true, you know, it it creates peace, you know, if there's Mm -hmm. wealth, abundance, it, it is much less likely for conflict to happen in that environment. And then there's also the ideological version of it, which is, let's just, vote for abundance let's just try and will it into existence that's like the fiat what you're talking about like yeah. let's just declare there is abundance you know minimum wage you know uh yeah. i don't know like a social uh, support net um you know free healthcare, free this free that like that is right. the, the ideology of abundance and so and so with those four universal solutions you can start thinking about even like categorizing some political factions like today like you could think about well generally the left what you could generally call the left i think is probably more sympathetic towards abundance you know the this idea of like voting for abundance and um uh on a personal level they can be in favor of restriction of access sometimes they they kind of like the personal freedom to do you know in my home i do what i want i can i can dye my hair purple you know and that's that tends to be more the left and then i think rather this is all very you know cliche and there's many variations but maybe the right is more um um i guess uh, uh, it could be abundance to entrepreneurship um oh sorry the left tends to be more also about consensus you know mm-hmm. social contracts you know we get together i remember i was in oregon once and i uh and it was like there was nobody in sight and we were in front of a red light. And I was like, why are you stopping? And this is like the the, the early 2000s, like no cameras, no nothing. And the lady was like, well, because we decided this. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? It's like, well, we created this rule that says you have to stop for a red light. And, mm-hmm. so, and so she was very much in that consensus mindset. Like, we all agree and that's how. And so I, I don't know. I'm curious about your thoughts. But I think the right is more about... Uh, On the one hand, restriction of access, property rights, but also there tends to be some unity a bit more, you know, like, Mm -hmm. why can't we all just do what we're told? And, you know, you just got to know your place or the kind of, um, you know, the kind of thing where the left feels like, no, you guys are authoritarian. Mm -hmm. I think that's a bit more alive sometimes in the right. And so to me, like this framework, I'm curious about your thought, but this framework it like allows for a lot of compassion that like we're all trying to solve conflict. Yeah. Right. And we just have different ideas on how to do it. And uh, it's, you know, it just, it, it, to me, it humanizes the debate a lot and it clarifies a lot, you know, it, it, it makes it more, okay. You know, what are the levers that we can tweak here?
0: Yes. No, wow. That's interesting. I've never heard of, i never heard of this framework before. Um, but well, it's quite interesting. I guess, you know, presumably the, the capitalist system or ideology is really just trying to resolve conflict with point number four, right? Increasing economic abundance, but then also having strong rule of law because there's still gonna be abu- I guess abundance never it's you never, can enough. never ha- you can never you can never remove scarcity, as we yeah. said earlier. Yeah that's kind of the punchline. So you could well, reduce
1: and, and so, in a way, you can validate the criticism of the left, right? If you if you describe uh, capitalism as only creating more abundance, well, then they're right to be critical of that, right? Mm. But if you're saying, no, 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 we have property rights, and like a, a, a an emerging property of that is that eventually you get more abundance. Well, that's a yeah. more that's a more comp- subtle debate, I think.
0: Yeah, and that's what I, I would argue. You observe that historically, right? That's what the United States was yeah. is the greatest experiment in strong property rights and capitalism. And yeah. here we are, right. The wealthiest generation there's ever been. Um, so I get w- one thing that really jumps out to me and I, I've been thinking about this recently is I've started to look at that left, right dichotomy as maybe a bit false. I mean, I know it's real and people have the, mm-hmm. the individualist versus uh, unity kind of ethic, mm. but in reality, all we actually have are real individuals, right? This is the first axiom of economics: man must act. Then all the collectives we describe—you know, the the nation, the church, the the Western world, the Eastern world, whatever—wherever you want to circumscribe a group of individuals and put a label on it, it's a fiction. It's a useful yeah. fiction, and yeah. we can we can. there's no no exactness to it, right? There's never like, oh, these are the Democrats and those are the Republicans. Like it's always a useful fiction. And those useful fictions are always comprised of real individuals. So the fundamental struggle that I think is real is this idea of the real individual versus the fictionalized collective. Yeah. And you'll notice too, when you get, you know, like the Marxist credo, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. There's always this appeal to the greater good or the, this, this fictional subduing your own self-interest to serve the greater interest of the greater good of society, They're always like sacrifice the real individual and give to, This fictional and
1: that's where it gets dangerous right if you like that's what you get in in the 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 exponent of that is stalinism like that's the ultimate you know and so it's you're right a group think that's the direction that it goes every time you deny the existence of the individual or that the individual has to you know um and although i do think you know like walter block and stuff you know there are libertarians i think who cross the line where they're like oh the individual above all else uh i do think there is you know to me it's reason above all else like that you know it's like it's the dialogue above all else not like whatever i think i need above all else like that that gets well then you just have war right
0: yes yes and i should um i should say here i'm not trying to throw out useful fictions and say oh those are just I, uh, that's why I call them useful fictions. Like we need useful fictions. That's how we. That's actually what makes human beings so powerful: is that we can create these abstractions and orient ourselves under them. Right. This is the whole Yuval Harari thesis in *Sapiens*: that man can cooperate flexibly in large numbers the way no other animal can because we have things like nation states and money and human rights.
1: Like yeah, we can, yeah, we can an program idea ourselves, accessible. right? I mean, like we, we write our own software
0: absolutely and that's where it gets interesting because it's almost like if you're if you're appealing to a group of individuals to sacrifice their individual self-interest and serve the communal that is necessarily being espoused by an individual yep. serving their own self-interest right they yeah, might like, say like
1: the, the priest speaking for god it's like yeah but dude but you're human
0: you know? Right. Exactly. So it's like, no matter what that usually guy, but I guess it could also be a girl says, it's like, you, you can't trust it. Right. Because they're talking about serving some fictionalized collective. Right. They're trying what might, my, my, my instinct is, it's almost like preying on the compassion circuitry that we all have. Like people come hardwired with this communal instinct, right? We're communal animals or social creatures. Mm-hmm and I always go back to the Marxist thing, like from each according to their ability to each according to their need. That sounds beautiful. Like, great. Can't we just do that? And the whole world would be harmonious and, you know, everyone's bellies would be filled and et cetera. But right. what actually happens when you implement that the exact opposite, right? Like hundreds, millions starved, millions murdered, totalitarianism, right. all the, right. all the atrocities of human history. So there's this key point that, Compassion doesn't scale. Is I was, I like I was sure.
1: just about to say, like, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like with everything is like distance is so important, you know, like, like, when you're, I read this thing in a book about, um, about beauty It's like, well, beauty depends on how far you are of this, of the thing that you're looking at, like, a fire can be beautiful. Not if you're standing inside of it, you know. Right. Uh, not if you feel it's your house burning down around you, you know. So, so like the the like the whole empathy circuitry is so powerful, so important. Um, but it's for personal relationships, you know. If if we're yes. thinking about thousands or millions of people, that circuitry can be deceiving to us. And I think often we need to. I mean, it's it's simple. that's why Bitcoin is so, is 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 going to win because it has the most. Um, what is the word uh, the, um, the most lightweight core protocol you know and so to me it's like I, I do think there is a hierarchy to these um, to these elements of unity, access restriction. I, I think unity is the bottom layer because I mean ultimately in the cosmos like everything is connected. so you could say there is there is a unity already, right um, yeah. and, and but when you're thinking about like human society, well, what kind of unconscious programming do we all need to, to make this work on a larger scale? Well, that's very minimal. Like we don't need to agree on a lot of things. Maybe it's something to do with some form of language. Like if we can, we can kind of learn some form of language, if we can kind of be aware of our individuality, you know, that, that's all very minimal, you know? And, 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 but, but because those are the things that you learn as an infant before you can talk, uh, you know by being res- your is respected you know the kind of mm-hmm. the things that you do to a toddler like y- you can't you can't get them to agree with how you're raising them because they can't even talk mm-hmm. yet so in a way mm-hmm. you are unconscious whatever you do is unconsciously programming them you're you're the role model uh, and so yeah it's like that that layer of unity sure it's there's a place for it but it probably should be quite small and then as we grow Absolutely. up we should be able to be aware of it and tweak it as, you know, however we need it for our lives or for, I don't know, not for society, for us individually.
0: Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's, um, you know, maybe the Dunbar number of 150 people, there's like, <clears throat> there's some degree of compassion there, but then as you move in concentric circles, like say from the, the 150 people closest to you to the 45 people closest to you, there's more right. compassion there, maybe in your right. church or whatever. And right. then you get down to the 15 people closest to your friends and family. There's more compassion there. Yeah. And then down to the three, like your core family unit, there's maximum compassion, right? Yeah. Total communism. Yeah. Right. I'm not billing my yeah. daughter for breakfast. You know, I'm just giving the shirt off my back. So to speak, <laughs> uh, right. right. And, and this is, that's one of Taleb's points. He calls it the scale variance of your political ideology. Where he says, "I'm a communist. I'm a communist at the family scale, but I'm a total capitalist at the geopolitical yeah. scale." Yeah,
1: and um, and the people who the people who like uh, are on a soapbox talking about we need compassion. Those are often the people with the most dysfunctional family backgrounds, right? They're often the ones exactly. who fail at you know living compassion in their very personal relationships.
0: Yes, mm-hmm. and I, you hit the nail on the head for me when you said self-programming because that seems to be key here too. It's that the understanding that we're all running software and that we all can be programmed. If you understand that, then you're probably going to try to program yourself as best that you can put yourself around the right people, read the right books, travel, like live healthy, whatever you'll adopt better habits. If you don't understand that, then someone else is likely to prey on that. They're going to- program It's like you're giving you. them the keys, right? Yeah. You're like, right. go ahead. Yeah. So it, and it gets a little bit almost metaphysical here, because again, we're living in these useful fictions, right? We're all inhabiting this story of whatever it is. We're Americans, for instance, we're, we're Bitcoiners, I guess you could say more loosely, we're entrepreneurs, whatever. It's a story. Yep. And in, when you're inhabiting that story, you're kind of in a trance of some kind. And like this sounds a little bit crazy until you see a bunch of people walk into a movie theater, for instance. Everyone just buys their ticket, they sit in the theater. You've got your back to strangers. You don't know any of these people. Like, how do you trust them? And everyone's quiet during the movie. Like, we're, we're, we're embodying the, the, the ethos of this story or something. And uh, it, it allows us to collaborate with strangers, right? Which is a really, it's like, really stop to think about it. And you go out into the city, you're just around all these people. Yeah. rewind that a couple of thousand years. I don't think that really would have worked so well, right? We didn't have the, the protocols or private property rights or whatever it is that, that allows us to have discourse in a harmonious way. Right. Um, it's all a software. It's a soft, it's a cultural, there's a cultural software and then there's the individual software and they're interfacing with one. Right. Right. Um, right. So Yeah. It, just a, a strange way to think about it then. And then I guess when you see people like largely politicians, typically they're trying to prey on people's, it seems like they're trying to prey on people's emotions. And if you can keep people in an emotional state, they'll never think they'll never realize they can program themselves or be free or think critically or question the illusions or question the useful fiction. Right. They'll just like operate out of fear. So that's where fiat comes into play. And, uh... yeah, and I
1: think it doesn't it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, but I think often probably the, the the people you're talking about, the individuals, like they they have a fear to let go of the stories that they have. And so mm-hmm. they just, they basically are trying to create consensus. Like what if I can make everyone believe the same story? Uh, so I'm just going to talk about it like it's reality. Like, of course, evil corporations are creating inflation, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... And then other people can deal with the weirdness that you're just making shit up and it doesn't make sense you know like they they you just outsource it in a way, but it it doesn't really matter what goes on for those people and like those politicians it's true like you know it is predatory and and you're 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 messing with how people are wired and and their their emotional circuitry
0: yeah and one last so again thinking about fiat a lot, I been trying to understand like where does this it's an almost an evil impulse in a way, but also not. Because, and here's why it's, I was again, raising a young daughter. I raised my daughter by Fiat. Mm-hmm. She's I three agree. years old. She doesn't, yeah. she doesn't know what's good and what's bad. What's bad. And she, no, you know, don't run down the stairs. Don't swallow the marble, you know, all the things that can really hurt her. Mm-hmm. I have to say, no, don't do that because I said so. Yeah. You know, I can tell her why, but ultimately it's, it's in a, in a an authoritarian approach right and you have to do that with your kids yeah you need to program them also want to phase out of it over time yeah you don't want to be telling your 30 year old not to swallow the marble and not to run up the stairs like you're doing it with the intention of of grooming them for autonomy but it seems like there's some weird schism some psychological schism on humanity where like adults grow up and they feel like they still need to do this to other adults and I don't know. Like it, it, it's, it's an immaturity on both sides. It's an immaturity to be coerced by fiat, but I think it's also an immaturity to try and coerce adults by fiat. Um, and I, I understand. Yeah, no, that, I agree. Uh, I agree. And I
1: think like, both of them, both of them, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I would say at the root is a, it's a lack of awareness. Like you're, you're, it's a lack of awareness of your own autonomy and of other people's responsibility. Like other people are responsible for their own lives. You're responsible for your life and if you really accept that, then a lot of this, all the mirage we're talking about, it falls away and, and, and things become very simple. And then of right. course there's conventions, but you can see them as such. It's like, yeah, yes. we're all quiet in the in the, in the theater because it, it works, you know, that, that's just how yes. it works. And, and not because it's, uh, it's, it's the unchangeable reality, you know? Like, no, we can right. change all that. It's just a convention and it works and this is how we do it in this culture. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, like that, that awareness that we're we are responsible for our own lives, I think it can be it can be severely damaged by how you know how you're raised as a kid. you know if if, if you can never question anything, if, if uh, you can never talk back if you' uh, you know you're, you're, you're shamed and punished uh, a lot, I think that that you know and, and even, even neglect, right? I mean, if you look at mm-hmm. feral children, like I remember when in I don't know why in my early twenties, I was like really fascinated by this phenomenon of like children that are abandoned at a very early age, they, they cannot get to the level of a normal adult anymore. And they, mm-hmm. they have a severe lack in self-awareness, you know? So it's like by interacting with other people, we learn about ourselves a lot. Um, so yeah, there's so many elements that go into, it's like we often take for granted like oh we are all humans but it's like no no no. if you look at a child without a certain context this is not going to turn into a full human being it won't right yes it's it's kind of i don't know it's it's beautiful and terrifying you know that that it's not a given that a child will turn into a a, a real adult you know in the philosophical sense
0: yes yeah it's um and there's something about like you just described the 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 div- division of it, right? If you separate a child from, actually, I read this recently. There are record levels of speech development impediments as a result of the mask mandate. The pandemic, yeah, yeah, the mask. Because yeah. kids are not getting the nonverbal cues of how to learn how to speak because everyone's always wearing these masks. Yeah, and it's like there it is. That's a division, right? You're creating some barrier to the flow of information, I guess. And there sim- seems to be like a similar dynamic when you, you're creating barriers to the flow of, I mean, a lot of things, good services, people, information, when we draw these, these arbitrary constructions, like, like even nations, right? I,
1: yeah, um, you mean like almost like a taboo culture. It's like, that's off limits. You can't do this. Well, i not do that. like
0: you said earlier, where, if you don't understand that we're creating these useful fictions and they can be modified, then you just take them to be ever present and eternal, right? Like I'm American and it's the dollar, the end. You never think about it again. And if you get trapped in that, you're toast. You're someone else's pawn. Um, Yeah. You're you're like an accident waiting to happen. You know, eventually you're going to
1: self emulate when you, when reality hits you. And I've seen people like that. they just, they just, They live in a bubble and eventually a reality hits them like a truck and then they're, they're just, they're done. It's over. Their life is over.
0: Yeah. And that's what I mentioned to you offline. Like I've lost a lot of faith recently in humans Mm -hmm. like a lot of those people have just fallen in line with whatever the narrative, whatever narrative is being fed to them. They're just, okay. Yes. Give me another booster. Give me another mask. I'll stay at home. I I trust my government. And it's like, I'm not here to tell you what to think necessarily, but I would encourage you to ask questions about your reality in the interest of being a self-responsible autonomous human, which you ultimately are. You can't, you can't get rid of that reality. You can't wish it away. You can't outsource it. You're ultimately always responsible for yourself. And it's, it's just disturbing to see people not um, operate from that level, I guess.
1: There might be a silver lining to all this for the the young generation, because you could argue that more than we were able to growing up, the young generation now is going to see roughly two categories of adults. Like they're going to see people that melt down, panic, like go into rages, all that stuff. And they're going to see people that. Uh, show courage and uh, and curiosity and 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 um, resourcefulness in the face of adversity um, and and that'll I think it'll make it more clear you know that there are two paths roughly speaking in life that you can go to uh, you know m- more humanity or or you can kind of um, what is it uh, in these old books you read them they they write about like You know, genius and then philistine like the the, you know the opposite of genius and humanity is like you know the brute the you know the primitive the philistines uh which maybe it's it's not politically i don't even know if if, uh, what we're supposed to say
0: can we say it's like fear versus love in the the old spiritual it's like if you're I don't know. I guess I don't know enough
1: about the context because there's so many contexts that those words
0: are used in. I'm just saying if if fiat is indeed, and this is all just speculation. I don't have anything to back this up really, but I just, fiat appears to me to be a product of fear. Whether you're imposing fiat, you're scared what people would do otherwise. So you're trying to force them to do something. And if you're complying to fiat, well, you're scared of what the, The fiat tongue the perpetrator might do to you if you don't listen to them yeah whereas love is something more um i mean love love's a whole deep complicated word but in this in many spiritual books i read it's like you have to decide are you acting out of fear are you acting out of love i see there's not really a lot of middle ground there so i guess love would just be not acting out of fear
1: off the top of my head if it if it said irrational fear and then you know rational love I, I would sign that <laughs> um, <laughs> like because I do think love can you know y- you can get into like fawn like it's that's not I don't yeah of course then it's like oh but that's not love but it's like it's like well you know I, if if love is congruent with reality yeah sure
0: yeah, yeah. so I, I could, I'll unpack love a little bit the the Greeks had a lot of words for love I can I know of three pretty closely there's Eros, which is consumptive love. I love the steak. I want to eat the steak, right? There's philia, which is reciprocal love, friendship, romantic relationship. You don't want to eat your friends. You want ongoing reciprocal interaction <clears> with them. That's, that's the value. And then agape, which is very central to the Judeo-Christian tradition, the selfless love of a parent for a child, right? When your child first comes home from the hospital, they're just inert really there's not even there's not even reciprocal love i mean there is some degree of it i guess but not much yeah. you're just giving to this this child um so i guess maybe it's the 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 middle one there right oh, you yeah. just get more philia in society that's just mm. again in the austrian tradition mutual voluntary exchange right kind of a form of philia i want to have ongoing trading relationship with you it doesn't mean i love you like Hug you, kiss you, but I want an ongoing relationship. I don't want to consume you. Yeah, Um, and
1: and then you want that with reality too, right? I mean, uh, you know, reality gives back as you give attention to it. It gives you back, and then and then you live in reality. Yeah, I can see that. I like that. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, Have you read the book *Finite and Infinite Games*? I have not. No, it's an interesting little philosophy book. It's kind of along the same lines as like a finite game you play to win and an infinite game, you play to keep playing. So it seems like the more we could get to the latter, the better. Um,
1: Oh yeah. It's also a bit like uh, that, that, you know, it's not about the destination. It's about
0: the journey. Right. Right. Exactly. Hey everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is NIDIG. Nightig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, NIDIG has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So, whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white-label your own Bitcoin product or service, Consider NIDIG your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Yeah, it's another one of those areas like property, which I want to talk more about now, but so sorely misunderstood. Fiat's even worse because you say the word fiat, people are like the car. (laughs) They have no idea. Uh, Even if you understand, even Bitcoiners that understand fiat currency and fiat money, they don't understand legislation by fiat, right? Fiat law versus... Um, I guess, customary law or discovered law? Well, I
1: think it goes into lex versus use, right? Lex is like the rule, uh, whereas use is like the law, which is natural law, which is like the process, Mm. the the thing that you end up with, the conclusion you end up with after discourse. Um, Yes, And I think a lot of people think that everything is about lex. You know, it's just Mm. whoever's in charge, they're making the rules and that's it. And then, but then, of course, it's like, well, are all laws just? You know, can you have some laws that are just not right? Of course, you can. Yes,
0: of course. Yeah. <laughs> the more, uh, Cicero, the more laws, the less justice. <laughs> um, that reminded me too. I mean, I really think fiat is, hmm, how do I say this? Very close to the heart of evil. Right? The idea, and here's, here's another way to put it. The original fiat was fiat lux. God said, let there be light. Mm-hmm. So it was a decree from a higher power that created reality. Fiat from man then is basically an attempt to play God, right? Yep. We're trying to make an <laughs> assertion about reality, override reality. An assertion about law, overriding natural law, for instance. Right. That's inevitably doomed to fail. I can say by fiat, the sun will not rise tomorrow. I'm probably going to fail. Right. Yeah. So Yeah.
1: One of the things that Von Denner always came back to was like, well, what if someone disagrees? You know, here, here's your amazing plan about how it all is going to work. And then like the way to stress test it is like, all right, well, what if somebody disagrees? What do you do? And that right. that is the failure of fiat. It's like, oh, because I say so. It's like, really? Like, what if I disagree? What do we do?
0: Exactly. Exactly. And, I, you know, you could take that, maybe you could add to that too. That And Peterson made this point that even if you could hypothetically construct the ultimate, perfect, communistic plan, right? Like, we know everything to do. We know how to allocate every resource perfectly. Everyone will be happy. Just assume we could do that somehow, which clearly is impossible, but even if we could one second into that plan, reality would have changed, right? Reality's constantly changing. If there's, you can't have a final static plan for an continuously never endingly adaptive reality. It does, it will never yeah. work. Yeah. You think you've mapped the territory perfectly. And then the territory shifts.
1: Yeah. Hence so, socialism you know, can't calculate.
0: Can't calculate, can't yeah. adapt. So it fails. Yeah, Um, but of course, you
1: you know, of course, under socialism, they'll say like, but, you know, who are you to say that, you know, the will of the nation, you know, it it just, it's just so slippery, right? They just bury you in rhetoric,
0: the will of the nation appealing straight to the collective, the fictionalized collective. Yeah, exactly. And then it becomes an excuse to murder real individuals. It's like, well, we did it for the good of the country. He was impeding the socialist utopia. So it's really bad. I want to ask about property, which we said we'd talk about a bit here. One of the things, let me, let me just say a couple of things about property and then I have a question I want to ask you about it. So Mm. the first thing that I've really tried to drive home in my work is that property is not a tangible thing or even it's not the asset, whether tangible or intangible. Property is not the asset. Property is the bond or the relationship between an owner and asset. Um, now, I thought I thought of this as something even deeper than law, almost as something that precedes law in a way. Mm-hmm. That if I'm if I'm a hunter and gatherer and I own a dagger, right? There's no legal system defending my rights to that dagger. It's like, I, this is my property. It's a, in a biological term, it's an extended phenotype. It's a tool that I made or acquired yeah. Yeah. and I can defend it and I can use it. So it's my property. Um, now you could also look at that in the legal sense that there is then a rule of law that protects that relationship between owner and asset. Um, so looking at property in the, in the non-legal sense, I also think it is a product of freedom. And the way I look at this is in the the natural law tradition, we have life, liberty, property. Life would be your future freedom. If you take someone's life, you've stolen their future. Basically you kill them, they have no more future. Yeah. Their liberty is your present freedom. If I throw you in jail or incarcerate you or otherwise restrict you, I've inhibited your ability to express your freedom in the present. And then if I steal your property, I've taken away the fruits of your past freedom, whatever you've done in the past to create value or create something of use, um, that was itself a fruit of freedom, I guess a fruit of your past freedom.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: So drilling into the past, and so property is a product of past freedom, and I get this from Rothbard, it's essentially an extension of individual self-ownership right? So we are each our own personal property. We're each individually self-owned. We can then choose to take that self-ownership into the world and create something of value, build a building, plant a garden, start a business, and then have rights to the fruit of that labor, essentially, that we can then trade. We can trade those fruits with other self-owned people. That's like the essence of capitalism and natural law. Here's my question. Something I took to be so obvious, which is individual self-ownership. I've had a lot of pushback on this from a lot of people. And they're like, no, you're not self-owned. You are the product of, you know, the people you spend of your community and your environment and your, your path dependent life history and all of these things. Are we individually self-owned? And if we are, how do we prove that in an argumentation um, argumentatively sound way? Yes.
1: So before I try to answer that question, I just want to validate what you said before. You know that property is about the relation between you and an asset, uh, and you or you and another and a phenomenon, right? I mean, you could even put it that way because it doesn't have to be tangible, um, and it's not about just the physical asset. I think that's really important. One word that Van Den often used that really helped, you know, drive the point, you know, home or or just illuminate all this is the concept of authorship. So that you know, you are the author of your life. You are the author. If you create this knife, you are the author of it. If you mm-hmm. write a letter, you're the author of it. And so you just, of course, you extend yourself. You know, you you blend it in with the world. You extend it by by the, your labor, uh, and it becomes, like you say, part it it it. it allows you to live a different future than you would if you didn't have those things, or if they're taken away from you. So people can steal your future from you. Um, And, and to, you know, maybe, maybe part of why there is so much confusion about this is that ever since the enlightenment, there's been this enormously influential school of materialism, you know, the billiard ball motto. And, you know, that, that whole idea that like everything is about the here and the now and the tangible and, what I think is often forgotten is um, uh, what Aristotle, um, uh, I actually forget his exact word, but the material cause of things, which is, mm-hmm. it's the, it's, uh, I mean, he, I think he uses Hüle, which is like wood, you know, the wood that you make a statue of, or, but it's, mm-hmm. it's the inputs that make something possible in the future uh, it's the, the paint that the painter uses. You know, all the, he could make a million paintings out of this little palette of, of paint. Um, and, 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 and that is what property represents. It's, you know, like, like we're talking about the library of books. Like I don't have to use every book every day for it to still be part of my, myself. You know, my, this is who I am as a writer. If my books were taken away from me I would be a very different type of writer. That would mm-hmm. change my future. I just, so just to validate that. um, um, So, so you're asking about, okay, what is the argument? And it's true. People really challenge you if you're like, hey, I'm a self owner. Like, isn't that obvious? It's like, no, you're just biology. You're like, you know, you're. You're a product of your parents, and and like, or even with the social contract. It's like, I never signed the social contract, so like, wh- what is this thing about? so, then what your ancestors did? It's like, oh, really? And so, <laughs> oh, and so, but like, but it's so that's only for like that kind of stuff. But like, if my ancestor like took part in genocide, then I'm not guilty, you know? Like, so right? I, I, another like- another
0: fictionalized collective right the yeah, ancestors right. Ooh, so,
1: so it's a very common you know it's a common criticism like oh are you really a self owner so so this is i think where you know um the argument from argumentation comes you know really shines and and it's a uh, uh, another what is the official term for it it's uh, argumentation ethics mm. so so the idea of argumentation ethics is that um We are, our essence of human being is that we we are a a conversational dialogue is just so central to to, uh, who we are. Um, And so if you, if you choose to go in a dialogue with me, you are implicitly respecting an ethical framework that underlies that you're implicitly acknowledging that I am a self owner. You know, you start mm-hmm. talking to me. It's like, OK, well, if you ask me a question in order to get an honest answer, you cannot threaten me with force. You have to respect that, you know, you, you can't tower over me, um, all that stuff. And, and so that's the, the very beginning of like, you know, and so it's self-refuting to talk to someone, to disagree with someone that they are self-owners, because in the very act of disagreeing. Because we're both agreeing to disagree, I'm acknowledging that you're a self-owner, and mm. so then if I'm like, yeah, well, whatever, I'm still gonna threaten you with force. Well, then it's like, okay, well now we're no longer in a dialogue. You're behaving like an animal, so I can treat you like an animal, which is get away from me. I'm closing the door, whatever. Self-defense. So, mm. so it's kind of like, um, and it's not. It's it takes it takes time to work with this stuff to realize that it's not a uh, a little you know mind game to do this you know it, it is a it is a proof which doesn't mean that how do i say this there's many ways to validate a certain reality but this is one that is particularly simple straightforward easy to do and it goes to the heart of this very core human activity of dialogue so that's mm-hmm. that's kind of you know one way to explain argumentation ethics and of course then it's also like if i If I threaten you with theft, well, then again, I'm unlikely to get an honest answer from you, right? If it's like, oh, only, you know, what do you think of this? And if you give me the wrong answer, I'm going to steal from you. Well, then that's so, so again, that, that also validates that our property is an extension of our, our, our individual person.
0: That's super helpful, actually, because, okay. Yeah. Agreed on dialogue. First of all, um, and also just small tangent, but I think that might be the great power of the digital age. Actually what we're doing right now, just mm. engaging in dialogos. Uh, whereas in the 20th century media was not, there wasn't much dialogos going on. We had a little bit of talk radio that a few people listened to. Maybe you got some there, but most of it was again, agenda, like talking at people. Sound One-way programming. Yes, exactly. So now we mm. moved for, from the one-to-many models of the many-to-many dialogues, yeah.
2: yeah
0: and so in the digital age maybe that's the great hope here is we're, we're having a resurgence in dialogue and that will help the human collective <laughs> to use a useful yeah thing. you
1: could even argue that there's, there is there is a part of the the printing press revolution that actually undermined uh, a tradition of dialogue that did exist you know for all mm-hmm. the flaws that the scholastics had their model of um of, of, of pushing knowledge forward was very much about debates. They had amazing uh, kind of like a tradition of, of, you know, back and forth and, and always acknowledging your opponent's arguments as you, you know, you proceed. Like, that was the basis of science, you know, like for all yes. the, again, like for all the, the gripes we have with the scholastics, they, they paved the way in many ways. Um, and, and so, and I think, and, and this is one of my, um, what do you call it? Um, pet peeves is that um the protestant reformation with the printing press there is something there that um lay at the basis of the whole idea of schooling schooling children the way the educational system is built the the idea of didactics the idea that you can print something on a page and you show it to a thousand people and you imprint this image in their mind like um, a stamp on wax or the idea of tabula rasa, like the literally a blank page. Yeah. The human mind is like a blank page. We can write on it. That is there's a lot of hubris in that. And I think that part of the dysfunction that we have in our world today stems from that. It's kind of like that, the lost tradition of Socratic dialogue, of, of, of debate, of listening to someone, thinking, you know, um, oftentimes even tradi- old books, they had they had wide margins so that you could write in it like little comments. Yes. And the next, the next study who would, would see the text and the comments. So I think we're reviving that with the internet. Like It's only been 20 years now. You know, it's amazing yes. that we have this. But yeah, it's just so powerful.
0: Yeah, no, yeah agreed completely on that. Um, so dial- what, I, what I appreciate you adding here is dialogue as actually engaging in dialogue is implying individual self-ownership Asserting. I
1: would I would say asserting. asserting. You're asserting it, and whoever right. agrees to engage with you has to accept that reality.
0: Yes. So it's you're implicit asserting in the context. And you're uh, being receptive to, because you can't, it's not enough for me to just assert, you know, that would just be fiat, right? If I'm just listening to what I say or else, yeah. it's like you have to be coming from a place of enough humility or receptiveness to understand that, you're looking at an equal, right? Another self-owned, yeah. self-sovereign individual now sharing back at you uh, things you may not see or understand, right? Um, and Peterson has this great point. He's like, of course that's real. Like, try treating someone like that's not real. If I just treat you, if I put a label on you, oh, Tur is just some Texan, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about, he's got a, and I and I treat you that way, like there's no dialogue occurring. Like you're mm. going to completely resent me. And there's, there's n- so I don't know what the very simple argument, the, the way I tried to describe individual self-ownership was the like, okay, if I want to move my left arm, well, there it goes. I moved my left arm. Now, if I want to move your left arm, but well, nothing happens. So it's like, yes, only you own yourself. Like in a very physics sense, you own yourself. Um, but this idea of, And then further, if you argue against individual self-ownership. So that was my simple example that people refuted and pushed back on. And I'm like, okay, maybe that's not enough. So then I tried to take it a step further and said, okay, if you argue against individual self-ownership, if I sit here and tell you, I don't believe in individual self-ownership, I think it's wrong. Is that not an act of individual self-ownership for me to formulate my own opinion? There you you go. There you go. There you
1: go. And as soon as someone, as soon as someone, can agree that we agree to disagree, that's where you got them. Because then, then if they have if they think long and hard and if they're logical, they'll end up with life, liberty, property right there. Yeah. As soon as they can right. they can agree, okay, well, you know, I don't think you're a self-owner. And then you're like, okay, can we agree to disagree? And then they're like, yes. It's like, thank you thank
0: you yeah <laughs> agree to disagree That's yeah. all it takes, because then but they it... have
1: to think through the consequences of what they're saying
0: yes and then what what you just added to me was okay to argue against individual self-ownership is in fact an act of individual self-ownership yes but also to to discount another person's individual self-ownership uh i guess i'm just kind of referring back to the earlier arguments like it doesn't work like you people aren't labels i guess is what i'm trying to say right what's that is it whitman i'm, I'm do i contradict myself well so be it i'm bass and i contain multitudes like everyone's like mm-hmm. like of course yeah. you see, yeah you see people expressing it everywhere all the time okay that's incredibly helpful
1: one concept we haven't mentioned and this is just yeah. it's not It's not elaborate. It's not an adding, really. It's just a a word that I think is is vital to what we're talking about. So if I say you are not a self-owner, what I'm doing is engaging in a performative contradiction, Mm. performative contradiction. Like my act is Mm. self-contradicting. And and so, because what I'm not doing is validating the obvious context that we are engaged in.
0: Mm. So, by saying that someone's not an individual self-owner as a human to a human, you're expressing your individual self-ownership, which would then imply because they're a human, they're individually self-owned as well. Is that the contradiction? Uh,
1: yes. Yes, and and then, like there's a similar argument for free will, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, where you know the stronger you're asserting, I don't have free will. I don't have free will. Well, and I disagree with you. It's like well, the fact that you're even think it matters to have this discussion means that on some level you do believe that you can convince me and you know, this free will is, is all around us.
0: Right. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it is, it's a performative contradiction, but you you can't argue against it without refuting the premise of the argument.
1: Yeah. The only thing you, you could do is because that's ultimately when you actually, I've done this with people like who actually believe this stuff that people don't self-own or don't have self-will. Ultimately they'll say like, but what if I just hit you in the face or like, what if I just walk away? It's like, all right, well, you can choose to behave like an animal, but it doesn't mean that, you know, it doesn't change reality. What is it? Ayn Rand is like, you can, you can deny the reality, but you're not going to escape the consequences of reality or something like that. Yes. yes. So it's like, yeah. it's self-defeating still, right? You can walk away, but it doesn't change reality.
0: It's still a choice. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Let me ask you about that. This is a bit of a bit of a stretch maybe, but this idea of most, if not all animals and organisms are territorial to some extent. Mm. Um, I don't, I don't think it's all actually, I read a book called the territorial imperative and it, I'm pretty sure it made the case that most animals are territorial and territoriality is a precursor to reproduction. Basically you want you want the plot of land or the nest or whatever is particular to your species so that you can um, show your competence uh, as a member of that species and attract a mate to reproduce and pass on the genes, you know, the, the Darwinian impulse is property, the human institution we have wrapped our basic, Territorial impulse in.
1: I th- I think maybe you could agree. I, you could agree with that, but it's I think it's dangerous because any kind of comparison with the animal realm, you can you can get into these utilitarian rabbit holes, and you, you can start losing track of the fact that ultimately the individual is is what's sovereign, and 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 that you know be having self awareness, having access to reason being able to go into engage in dialogue is what makes us human. And it, and there's a, there's a phase shift there. Like there, it's a, it's a different dimension that we live in. So I'm always hesitant to be like, Oh yeah, of course it's, you know, is that, but of course, you know, yes. You know, to live together, you like, you need certain things and, and, you know, maybe, uh, maybe could you formulate it again? The, 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 is, is this, that?
0: Yeah. Um, I guess I'm, asking about this in terms of establishing the genesis of property like freedom for instance and just a natural environment freedom for a a puma right the puma is only free to the extent that it can defend itself and its territory right and it's sort of true again i think for humans even if, if you look at us look at the nation state, right? It's, we've established a boundary, we've defended it within the boundary of that nation. We have created this social institution called property rights that instead of it being kind of law, of the jungle property, whoever can claim whatever territory, the biggest meanest we've instead tried to create a hierarchy based on competence instead of dominance, something like that. Um, But I'm asking to see if really to put property in a more firm foundation. It's like, no, this is something like territoriality, something that's natural to life. We've just taken it and put it in this institution that instead of killing each other to take property, we can actually be like, go and be a good entrepreneur, serve the interests of the consumer. Then you can acquire more property, more territory, whatever you want to call it. Maybe Um, one way to talk
1: about it would be that like, you know, scarcity is just a given. And so in order to navigate this scarce world, we we need to like assert ourselves a little bit. Like we need some territory to uh, have a little bit of abundance, you know, to just have like Mm -hmm. that little bit. And then it's like, okay, but how do we negotiate the fact that we all need that? Well, Mm -hmm. what we want is a consensus over the, over that principle like that, you know, Mm -hmm. even in practice, we might disagree on particular, you know, property rights conflicts, but we agree on the, on the concept like we agree on on the the kind of the the, the whatever we need the blockchain you know the, the idea of like let's this is how we do things we we you know that kind of thing um so yeah i mean i i i, I think it, there is something very core like we need we need to we need to displace air right i mean we need we need yeah. to exist in reality so uh it's just you would be denying reality to deny that that you know like that's maybe how you can get a socialist is to be like okay well how much how many atoms am i allowed to you know to to take in this world right um yeah it's inevitable we're going to take some space and then we're going to bump into each other and we need a way to navigate um that hopefully would just you know you cannot never have conflict but it's more about like how can we
0: yeah, like how do you resolve it?
1: Yeah, how do you resolve it in a sustainable way? I think that's probably key, right? You know, in a right, way right, that's repetible, right. repeatable, um, and that doesn't blow itself up eventually.
0: Yes, yes. And so, you know, I've had this series going on with Jason Lowry. I don't know if you followed much of his work on Twitter, but he has this power projection thesis about, I guess sort of I don't want to put words in his mouth, but sort of like that. Like you have to defend your property for it to be your property. Basically you can defend it yourself. You can outsource the defense or you can just trust that someone won't violate your property. Trust is usually a pretty bad strategy, right? You need to have some mechanism of defense, whether yeah. that's rule of law, national border, whatever. But here again, we encounter what I think is a bit of a paradox because, okay, we trust the nation state to secure us, to preserve this economic enclave that we have strong property rights. We have access to rule of law for nonviolent dispute resolution over that property. But that very institution holding the monopoly on violence seems to inevitably turn on its own customers over time. Right? It's And we're, again, back to taxation being that that fundamental schism. Yeah like it's the only business in the world deriving its revenues from non consensual exchange. And when it, it seems like when it hits a limit to its own growth, maybe either the market's not bearing enough revenue for it, that the state starts to lean into this violation of property rights via taxation. And maybe this is connected to the, the boom and bust business cycle too. Like we have the boom and bust business cycle through violation of property rights through currency debasement. Maybe we have a civilizational boom and bust. Yep. Like, the the a like
1: a fraud yeah. cycle. In my, in my view, the business cycle is, is just one example of a fraud cycle. There's many yes. you can have them on very small levels, the ICO pump and dumps for fraud cycles. Uh, but yeah, you know, you could argue that you know, nation state to, to the extent that they they're proliferating a lie, and then eventually that lie gets like snaps, you know, that lie gets exposed. Uh, and then you have the, the downturn. Uh, that that's it it, it. it generates errors in society. People make decisions based on the lie. Those accumulate, and eventually, it all unravels. Um, so, so yeah. The, I guess yeah. We're back at that paradox about you know war versus justice, or um, what did you say? Property versus uh, you know maybe violence.
0: Contract versus conflict. I think I said. Contract that. versus conflict.
1: Right. So, I I think something that is. Rather invisible, but I don't think you can deny it. Is that? Is that? And you see this when you compare different cultures and, and countries around the world. Is that um, the people that enforce, that are the enforcers, are vastly in the majority. And like Game of Thrones has examples of that as well, where it's like you know the slaves are are far outstripping you know the ruling class. And so I think the explanation, which is also the T, the like the, the book we're talking about, why, why does the king rule, even though he's we're mm. millions and he's only one? Uh, I think it's the programming. It's like there is a consensus mm. about doing things a certain way. Um, and so I would argue that it's the consensus. And the way to keep the consensus healthy is to have that continual dialogue, which is like the open mm. source development, like you keep stress testing and like launching things on test net. And, and then eventually, you know, you have um, a bip that gets accepted and then gradually, you, you know, you, you build, you build institutions in layers, you know, uh, yeah. and, and in societies where, where that consensus is very brittle, you just, you just have way more chaos and you need a lot more enforcers. So, so that's, I, I would argue to Jason, is that his name?
0: Yeah, Jason Larry, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I would say that it's not the, that it's the, at the core is the consensus and the consensus mm-hmm. can be kind of, um, can be brittle and fallacious and fraudulent, or it mm-hmm. can be healthy and vibrant and all that. And, um, and that, and that no army can, can fix anything like, you know, might doesn't make right. It just it can't, you know, the only thing you can do is, is maintain the consensus for longer. But if the consensus has a bunch of lies in it, it's gonna break down eventually, like like Pal, Like suppressed volatility eventually leads to hyper volatility. So I don't, you know, I think it's dangerous to say, oh, we need all these enforcers and this threat of violence and all that. Of course, you know, like we were talking about the animal. You know, if if you are debating with someone who cannot agree to disagree and they're gonna attack you, well, yeah, of course. But that's part of the consensus. Like you want a healthy societal debate so that the fringe the dysfunctional fringe of society gets a proper response where you can be like, all right, I'm going to close the door. And that's where you get into maybe, you know, you can blacklist certain people, mm. uh, you know, that's where insurance companies can play a role. You know, historically, you know, it, it was, it was, um, what's it called? A ex, 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 not extradition, but um you you would push someone out of the city, you know, if, if they continue. Like exile exile right you can you know if they continue you you push them out same with the family right sometimes you know or in friendships if someone mm-hmm. if someone keeps um uh keeps hurting people then you can say look i'm, I'm not going to be friends with this person anymore um so so i don't know maybe that's kind of the, the start of a solution is to like think about the thing that's often invisible is the consensus you know and then is the yeah. consensus healthy or is it more corrupt
0: Right. No, that's, that's helpful. I should um, condition a little bit of Lowry. So Lowry is actually a huge Bitcoin bull. And when he, I think this is where he caught a lot of misunderstanding when he described this as a power projection thesis. He's describing power more from a physics sense. Yeah. So he's saying that we, we've needed what he calls kinetic power projection across history to establish property rights. That's the military, that's warfare, national borders. And he views Bitcoin as an electrical power projection alternative for establishing property. So that's you know that's hash rate, all of that. Yep. Um, and, so, and I, it, I think it, I agree on the physics level.
1: And, but yeah. I would just say that's you're talking about restriction of access. So you are kind of like talking okay. about a more primitive level. Restriction of access is the the, the realm of uh, technology of you know that kind of thing. And then once you're talking about human conflicts. But, and of course, by, by using Bitcoin, we shrink the space of possible conflict, which is brilliant, yes, exactly. right? Yes. And so the, the things that we need to have consensus over is way smaller. And, and, and it also kind of explains why people in the Middle Ages, why there was so much superstition, because they needed right. this big, thick layer of consensus to keep things kind of under wraps. Whereas with technology, yeah. we've been able to shrink that space.
0: Yeah. It's so, it's so damn interesting because as you're describing this, the consensus, right, is a social technology in and of itself. However, we're establishing it, you know, Bitcoin I would say is the most efficient form we've ever had, but even medieval social consensus was a, there's a software program that people are sharing. Yeah. So is Bitcoin then as much of a praxeology protocol as it is an internet protocol?
1: (laughs) Yeah. I would say like, the, the cool thing about Bitcoin is that it's it's this technology layer that says you know restriction of access so like we resolve a lot of conflicts before they can even happen because it's like the North Koreans talking about stake is like whoever wants to steal your Bitcoin, it's just like on the moon it's it's you know in a practical yeah. sense if you use multi-sig and all that it's out of reach um, So it's not even a, an issue uh, but then but then the consensus about Bitcoin is, probably very thin it's probably just like the only thing we need is for people to agree to use it that's all yeah. we don't need like a fat protocol about bitcoin because a lot of it is just is um is 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 embedded in code it, it, it's hard-coded it's it's technological physical
0: so it's so wild because again way out on a limb here but we've talked a lot about useful fictions today these social technologies and psycho softwares we're using. It seems like to me, one of the keys of that to making one of the, to making those useful fictions sustainable is that they are maximally truthful and maximally useful. Yeah. And that's what Bitcoin is, right? Like, okay. If money is a map to the territory, if you will, of time and energy, well, Bitcoin maps to it perfectly. Like it's radical ownership, you know, property independent of state coercion, immune to state coercion, as you said, if it's custodied properly. Um, doesn't that change everything? I mean, it changes us, right? It re-architects our own software over time, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, I think it really, it really will. Like it's, it's um it's like, I don't want to overstate it in the sense that similar to, you know, uh navigational technology and um and and the printing press and all that it was like an amazing shift change but there are still problems in society there's still like mm-hmm. a need for flaws you know it's like if anything it should reinvigorate us because that whatever is conflict space is left is now smaller and right. and we can just be more deliberate about creating a better world for the next generation. Like it it gives us a focus Like we don't have to debate about the fed meetings and, you know, the fed minutes starting. And and there's so much energy is freed up to talk about the important stuff. We don't have to worry about money so much anymore and investing and all that, you know, boring stuff. (laughs)
0: Yeah. 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 Trying to outrun inflation and all of that. Hmm. Um, It's like energy leaks in a way, like
1: energy just, kept leaking away with this, you know, crazy bureaucratic financial system. And now it's just all like tightened up.
0: Uh, yes. yeah. I find myself coming back to this quote from Whitehead often. And I'm just going to roughly paraphrase it. But he says, civilization advances by the number of important operations we can do without thinking about them. And so, like you're describing, how many people are concerned about what Jerome Powell is going to say next week and did he use significant or did he use extreme, like the language, what clothes he's wearing. There's just this whole, all this human ingenuity and bandwidth pouring over the words from one guy. Absolutely. It's like That's all a waste. Like all of that goes away in a Bitcoin world. It's like, yeah. you know, there's been another block every 10 minutes, having schedules right on time. Like you don't even think yeah. about it. It just, it just is. So Absolutely. No, oh, I, I agree on that. Word, especially, yeah. you know,
1: especially prosperity. That's how prosperity advances, you know? Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Hey guys, I hope you found this episode valuable. At the What Is Money Show, we are striving to deliver the most valuable knowledge possible in each and every episode. However, as Aristotle said, the purpose of knowledge is action, not knowledge. So I hope you're deriving some useful knowledge from the show, and I hope it's improving the actions you are taking in your life. Speaking of action, if you want to dive deeper into the big ideas explored in this show, please sign up for my newsletter titled The Freedom Analex" at breedlove22.substack.com. Also, have you bought your tickets for Bitcoin 2022 in Miami yet? If not, it's your lucky day as I am giving away 10 million sats, which is roughly 4,000 US dollars to one lucky person who buys a conference ticket through my affiliate link. My affiliate link can be found on my Twitter profile at breedlove22, which also has a link. My Twitter profile has a link to my link tree, which you can also visit my link tree directly for links to all my work, including... Bitcoin 2022 affiliate sales. My link tree is linktr.ee backslash readlove22. Thank you so much. I appreciate you guys watching the show. I hope you're finding some valuable knowledge in the What Is Money show, and I'll see you back here again next time.